Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, this is Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Chingyan Ma, uh, Design Research Lead at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, also in previous UX roles at Memorial Sloan, previously to that, a user researcher at NYU Health and um, received a PhD in medical anthropology from Temple University in the Philly, well, in Philly. And so today we're going to talk a little bit, um, particularly on, I would like to cover kind of medical anthropology as a background coming into UX, really you know, what it looks like to transition into health research and uh, you know UX in health, seeing as that's something I haven't done on the show today, uh, on the show yet. So thanks for coming on today. Really looking forward to it. So would you start by telling everybody you know a little bit about uh, expand on your background, how you came in anthropology. I I know your undergrad was in um, was it it was not anthropology. So would you mind maybe sharing why you switched and and you know kind of going through the education. Sure, it's a it's a long story. I think when I started, my undergraduate is in English, so uh, and it was uh, in China. So I studied English in a University of Economics and Finance. So basically, the English we studied is not English literature; it's basically very applied English in economics and trade and finance. So um, in terms of job job prospect, if you study English in related to um, economics. It will very easy to find a job in uh, like uh, in the bank in the financial industry, and most of my undergraduate uh, classmates cohort they work in those in those uh, area. But um, I think for me, when I study economics, I I don't really like economics um, principle like everyone is rational. You make rational choice. I don't think people are always rational. So I was looking for what make people make decisions. And I find there's behavioral economics and there's anthropology, especially economic anthropology. They study, you know, real human behavior, real human decision-making that I think the first uh, uh, first draw for me in anthropology. So when I finished my undergraduate, I actually went to teach English in the, in the countryside for a year. And then I applied graduate school in anthropology uh, in China. So I went to the uh, anthropology department for my master's in Shenyang University in Guangzhou. It's the oldest anthropology department in China, also also the best. But people will will argue about that. But we <laughs> I, we think we are the best in China anthropology department. And after that, I went to Temple University to study anthropology in PhD. Great. So that's Thanks. my transition from basically business finance to anthropology. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And it's uh, you know, I, the, your comment about rational is is interesting to me too because when I was younger and just sort of reading, I come from a business background as well, and so we like reading the text. It always just innately feel like there was something wrong with that, and of course, 
behavioral economics has done a great job of sort of disproving that in, in more recent years. But yeah, it always there was always a friction there, and that, that never quite made sense. And I didn't have the opportunity of coming across anthropology in undergrad, but I, I can certainly see how uh, you know that. Um, you know, having that experience, you know, whenever somebody gets that experience, they could also sort of start to poke holes in that kind of rationality argument and <laughs> along with numerous other subjects, of course. But it's um, it, so it's still an interesting path, though, coming from that background and then making the transition to medical. Um, so did you, you know, by the time, well, by the time you chose to go to Temple, you obviously uh, it's I presume you had already kind of picked in your mind that you were going to do medical. And yes. So, so that's that. interesting. So it goes to my master's uh, degree in in, in Shenyang University. So I, in the beginning, I thought because my background in, in economics, I would study economic anthropology for sure. <laughs> but then in Shenyang University, they so the mentor was assigned. <laughs> so they assigned me a mentor who is a medical anthropologist. I think he's also the first medical anthropologist in China. He wrote the first textbook in medical anthropology mm. in Chinese. So um, uh, I feel very lucky to study with him and uh, to transition to medical anthropology. But in the beginning, I was worried because I didn't have any medical background. I didn't, you know, I wasn't a major in biology or human, human, any, you know, science related subject. I was majored in English and economics, but then they told me you don't need to have too much medical background. And Guangzhou is a very interesting city. It's a very international metropolitan city. And it is it is a like international city, like a port, import and export city for over 1,000, maybe 2,000 years. It's very, at least 1,000 years is a, like the port city in China. So it has all this influence from all of the world um, Europe, Africa, um, all parts of Asia, all come, you know, come together in Guangzhou. So it's medicine is very interesting. And so I was joined to traditional Chinese medicine in Guangzhou. So I, my master's thesis is to study the social construction of traditional Chinese medicine in the hospital. So that's my, my thesis. And uh, I did my field work that was more than more than uh, 15 years ago, <laughs> long time ago. That's my first uh, uh, fieldwork research in the hospital. And uh, it also my, the start of my career as a medical anthropology and uh, my career in hospitals. That, um, so that's, that's the start. And the, the rest of the story is I just stay in the medical field. So just to stay on that for a bit, because it's interesting. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about the, you know, given the metropolitan sort of nature of the city, um, I'm assuming that there's some Western medical influence there, like in terms of kind of classic Western biomedicine. So how was that sort of negotiated? How did you know, traditional Chinese medicine come together with Western bioscience? That's the excellent, that's an excellent question. And it is exactly why my uh, my interest in traditional Chinese medicine. Remember, my research is in the hospital. Hospital is, and it's the hospital, it's the Guangdong Provincial Hospital of Traditional Chinese Medicine. But 
my I touch on the the purpose. Uh, I touch on the topic about social construction of traditional Chinese medicine because as a hospital, the hospital is um like a biomedical institution, biomedical sense. It's not traditional Chinese medicine in our in our you know. Uh, traditional thinking is a, is a very small clinic. One doctor treating patient is alternative medicine. But in China, at least in this hospital, it's totally a Western biomedical biomedical model. It is like any modern hospital. So the hospital operating in the way of uh, what they call is integrated Chinese and Western medicine. So it is. Uh, in practice, it's dual diagnosis, dual prescription, dual examination. So they will diagnose you in both biomedical way. They will do blood work. They will do uh, CT. They will do MRI. They do all those biomedical, you know, Western medicine, modern technology to diagnose you. They also use traditional Chinese medicine technique to diagnose you, like check your pulse, look at your facial expression, look at your tongue. So dual diagnosis and in the prescription or treatment is dual treatment. You will receive Chinese medicine treatment, acupuncture. In the meantime, you will receive antibiotics. So everything is uh, dual. And uh, this is how they constructed as uh, uh, integrated medicine. Got it. Uh, and still in the name of traditional Chinese medicine. So that's interesting because when I went to uh, the University of North Texas, or it was an applied program, and so we would, in our, you know, sort of non-core classes like a business anthropology class or a design anthropology class, we always had applied projects that were with corporations. And so we did one with uh, Baylor Health, and we were looking at patient satisfaction for Southeast Asian patients, and a lot of the um, though they were. You know, in in like Western biomedicine sort of uh, measures of success or outcomes, they were basically having the same outcomes as all other patients. But from a satisfaction perspective, it was lower. So I'm curious to maybe relate that back to your experience, if possible, and even think of it in in like a UX or kind of service design perspective. If you were to reflect on it now, do you think that those patients were having a better experience as a result of having both? Exactly. So earlier I touched on the dual diagnosis, dual uh, treatment prescription. That is on the hospital side, right? Hospital side construct this traditional Chinese medicine in this uh, method. But for patient, why they still choose this hospital of traditional Chinese medicine? Because they have their understanding of what is the best for them. They think integrated medicine is the best for them. So in, in their sense, Biomedicine, Western medicine always have, you know, side effect, too much side effect, like uh, like antibiotics is very powerful, but it can make you very weak. So I need traditional Chinese medicine to make me feel better. I need acupuncture. I need herbs to, to nourish me. And this hospital can do the best because they are the hospital of traditional Chinese medicine. Um so that is why, for, for from patient perspective, they are looking for what is the best for them, and for the hospital side, they des- they know what patients are looking for, and they are specialized in doing both. So, they, so at the end, there is a like the uh, the interface 
what is the best. Patients think this is the best. Hospital provide what is the best. So I, I think that's what my thesis is about. Yeah, interesting, and it, it's sort of similar to what we found, which is to say that, again, uh, you know, the various Southeast Asian populations oftentimes wanted, you know, whether it was Ayurvedic or traditional Chinese medicine, you know, kind of, you know, if, you know I say if they were maybe Malay or um, like brought in to the process, as well as things like considerations for food being served and you know family structure, like how how many family members could you have there and how could they stay overnight, right? Like you know, basically sort of more mimicking what they would have experienced elsewhere at home. Um, so interesting to just kind of connect those. And so now to maybe zoom forward. So you know, you go through temple, you come out with your medical anthropology degree, you've you have this previous experience where in fact you kind of were looking at the experience of patients, but you might, maybe you were, maybe you weren't thinking in, in those terms, but today you're working sort of in experience-based roles at, Memo- well, first at NYU Health and and, and now at Memorial Sloan. So um, how did all of that sort of help you get into these health roles? How did you make that transition? Did you realize that you had all those, that, that those sort of applicable knowledge and skills, or did it take you a little realize to, re- you know, to figure out that UX was a way to apply that? So I think for me, I'm, First of all, I'm, I'm a researcher in healthcare before I'm a UX researcher. Oh, in UX, mostly what I'm doing is the digital products. So we, we do design research or user experience research of digital products. In other words, that's technology, you know, health technology in hospital. Um, so if you just study talking about products or tech, then UX makes total sense. But for me, um, I'm before before I'm a UX researcher on tech or product. I'm a researcher in healthcare. So uh, and uh, I think from that line, it's it's always consistent. I didn't transition that much. It's always consistent. I started my career 15 years ago in the hospital, and still up to this day, I'm still working in the hospital, different hospital, mm-hmm. but still in the hospital. And all those structure, all the tension in the hospital, all the tension between you know patient provider hospital staff is all the same uh, and uh, what add into my um, my uh, portfolio is the tech and product uh, space mm-hmm. so how was that you know for you because obviously so even though you were sort of already accustomed to you know the, the sort of habits and rituals of like what happens in the healthcare, physical space, the language of tech is very different, you know, even uh, potentially the pace, you know, could be maybe, I mean, I know healthcare is generally frantic, but, you know, we, we have a certain cadence in, in tech, you know, when developing products. So what is, what did that transition look like? You know, how did you go about sort of learning the language of tech? Yeah, I think that that's the, that for me, that's the part of transition. I think it starts with my, uh, my postdoc. Uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. My postdoc is on um, uh, HIV AIDS, HIV uh, cure, uh, is in the in the landscape of global health. So in the HIV w- world, a lot of um, um, study we're looking at was so-called intervention. And as a social scientist or as a behavioral uh, behavioral scientist or public health, the intervention we're looking at are usually non-medical intervention because we cannot invent a new drug or treatment. What we're doing is mostly this behavioral intervention, like improving uh, uh, 
drug adherence, medication adherence, and those interventions we are looking at more and more, we are looking at technology intervention. So in the old days, maybe 15 years ago, we are they are thinking about sending text messaging to patients to remind them to take medication. That's the oldest, oldest technology intervention, sending text message. But these days, text message is so outdated. Let's think about building a website or an app to, to you know, improve uh, people's knowledge about medication, improve their behavior. So those are gradually, we are looking at this technology intervention and we have to build an app or website. And uh, at NYU, we started to, to do this. And uh, because I'm a researcher on that, I have to study the user who are patient or, or stakeholder or clinician. I have to interview them. It's basically the same as I do interview, uh, I do research in my previous, all the previous projects. But this time, the end product is we are going to build an app or website. And uh, that is, um, and uh, user experience or design research, they have already established methodology or, or process of doing that. So I have to learn those to do my job. And so it's it's a very natural transition. Uh, and 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 Memorial Sloan Catherine, so I'm uh, I'm I'm the dedicated researcher to do that. So, you know, being a team of one is always interesting. Um, it's interesting for me on in a you know smaller consulting agency, but for you, a team of one in a hospital setting must be particularly interesting. Um, you know, arguably, you could find many things, you know, too many things that need to be researched, and obviously, there's limited capacity. So, how are you going about sort of managing, you know, being a team of one in a hospital where there must be so many competing demands? Uh, so first of all, we are growing. <laughs> we're growing, so we we are going to hire more researchers. And second is um, so uh, our hospital is also um, uh, a large academic medical center. So there are a lot of researchers here. They are just not UX researcher or design or product researcher, but there are a lot of researchers here. Um, so we can we can learn from them. And also we have, uh, uh, right now we also have a very good design team. So our designers are also uh, design journalists, they do research. So you can find all these allies and we're growing. So, you know, you use the word allies, which is interesting. I don't think anybody's used that term before, but I like it. Um, you know, there's all there are all these adjacent roles. And sometimes we do like to feel like we are, you know, maybe the authority, right? We come from a place of... From an academic background that maybe gives us particular insight but the truth is is other people can learn to do what we do as anthropologists and they might just do it sort of innately right and uh there can be designers who are great researchers or even engineers um and so you know it's i think it's always worth pointing that out because we don't necessarily need to act like we're the only ones who can do this because obviously if we work together in teams we can build better products so what are you you know, how does that come together for you in the hospital? Like, how are you working with some of these allies? Um, you know, maybe you can't go into specifics of products or anything that you're working on, but how do you navigate sort of working together with all these different disciplines? So I think we, um, most of us working on product are working in uh, product teams. There is innately uh, multidiscipline. Um, they, they are multidiscipline. 
plenary. So there are people from uh, design or engineer or data science or there's product ma- product manager. Um, so I think people have different role play, but at the end, we, we all have the same goal. So I think coordination and collaboration is very important. Uh, I think a lot of people like to use the word pick up each other's brain. Uh, sometimes we do that. And the goal is to, uh, you know, have a better product. Uh, I think before you started to work, I think alignment is very important. You have to align what you want to achieve, align your expectation, align your timeline, align your goal. And uh, after that, after everybody's aligned, it's much easier to to start. Uh, at a certain point, you are going to, you know, to do separate things. But uh, constantly uh, think or update is very important. So it's, uh, so you're working in a team. You don't work alone. I, I think for people who transition from um, academia, is uh, who are so used to work alone. Like I, I wrote my dissertation from start to the end. I, I manage everything, every aspect of my dissertation. But uh, right now when you are working in product space, you are not alone, you you work in team. The team is uh, is uh, is as almost as one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you may be the eyes, somebody may be the ears, but uh, you have to coordinate so you can have a, a good sense about what's going on. You know, your point of working alone obviously is true, but something we maybe not, we don't always frame it this way is that when in the field, you are collaborating, right? So yes, you know, like a thesis or dissertation is sort of a, a solo project, but it's, it isn't also to say that we don't collaborate because obviously the, the nature of doing research in the field is very collaborative. And so, you know, I want to point that out just for anybody who's listening, who's thinking of how to reframe, you know, that academic experience. Those are skills they have. And they also have things like project management, right, of course, because of, of managing the project, um, which brings up, you know, a question about that for, for you. So, you know, if you mentioned product teams, but you as one person can't be embedded in one product team. So I imagine you're touching multiple product teams, you know, in a sort of a shared model. So that would imply then that you're doing a bit of project management, maybe even recruiting, you know, and of course, research and analysis across multiple projects. So anything that you've learned from balancing maybe multiple at once? Yeah, I think uh, uh, find a good uh, framework is very good. It's very important. Uh, the framework about like uh, research planning and uh, so um, not just uh, um, like I... I I started this framework, everyone should use it. I think it's uh, also bring uh, all the team members, all the collaborators into one space and we collaboratively, we collaboratively develop this framework. It's very important. So it's not like I decide everything and uh, I just uh, top down, I give them, you should use it. That's never going well. You have to learn how to uh, empower people and uh, co-create co-develop is very important. So talking about collaboration is, uh, you know, it's almost like cliche, everyone's collaborative, but uh, how really start the collaboration is very important. And at the end of the day, you want people to use it. So um, people will use something because they have part in it. So that's the basic reason you you need to co-develop, co-create. 
different frameworks, different templates, different um, processes. Agreed. So, you know, another thing that I think is interesting about the health space, obviously ethics, you know, cuts across all of the work we do, especially being researchers. And there are certainly some industries where it's maybe even more, you know, where it's, where it's ethical challenges are very present, like particularly around AI today. But in the health space, it's, you know, it's, it's very present through a lot of the work we do. Um, and so, you know, in my case, when I was studying, you know, consumer genetics, obviously you can, you can probably appreciate the implications of, you know, presenting data like that to people, um, that quite frankly may not be accurate because we don't fully understand multigenic conditions yet and the way that they may change their health behaviors. That's just one example. There's, there's, I'm sure many more in your, in your daily work life. So can you speak to maybe not giving specific like ethical challenges if you can't because of like any sort of privacy with work, but just, can you speak of what, you know, how you're navigating ethics in, in the medical workspace? Um, actually, there's a medical space. Um, uh, it's the one of the maybe the most heavily regulated area into in doing any kind of research, um, even like clinical research or behavioral research or social science research in medical space. You are heavily regulated by HIPAA. First of all, <laughs> uh, if uh, HIPAA H I P P A, it's the health uh, like. Um, it's the regulation how to prote- protect PHI. PHI is a uh, uh, protected health information. So those are the things like regulate everything we are doing. So um, so first you have to comply to HIPAA everything. I think that that is very challenging. So sometimes when we do research, um, I know for all of us, when you are doing research, you, there's constraints. But for healthcare, constraints is even bigger than you imaginated than you imagine so you have to be uh, very creative and uh, maybe not start from you know recruiting people to interview them that may not be the very good first step maybe first step is to 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 do a lot of desktop that desktop research to understand what's going on and recruit specific people for your research and uh, compliant to HIPAA. Got it. And how much of your work has to go through, you know, any kind of um, internal review? You know, before usually, you- yeah, usually because our most uh, in the product space, uh, our project is under the category of quality improvement. Um, it's um, lower risk. So usually we don't need to go through IRB, uh, but if you have, if your uh, project has to collaborate with a, a clinician, a clinical researcher, you have to go through IRB. Got it. Um, so, um, and back to the constraints. So the, you know, you said maybe you start with desktop research, but can you uh, maybe elaborate on the constraints a little bit more and you know, just how you've been dealing with them aside from the desktop research? Uh, I think the the constraints, one of the is you cannot collect people's uh, patient, you know, PHI. And the first, uh, uh, for a lot of people, what is PHI? 
is <laughs> is a good question because PHI, if I know your name, is that PHI in your date of birth and which street you are in, your your age. So basically, PHI is anything that can make other people to identify you.、Mm-hmm. You cannot collect any PHI. Sometimes, if you have to collect PHI, how to how to store it, how to protect it? It protected health information. How to protect it? You have to. You need to have very clear,、um, like guidance about how to protect the PHI, and、uh, you know, basically, you don't collect PHI. And sometimes, you know, I know in the product space, if if it's not in healthcare, you you develop this version, you test it with this person, maybe six months later, you have another version. You want to try to test with the same person to say any changes. But for us, we can't because、uh, we don't collect their picture. We don't know who they are. We don't、okay. want to know who they are. So that's that's kind of the constraints you have to face. So for people who are you know really interested in the health space, but maybe don't come from a medical anthropology background, how do you think that they can? You know, what what would you say that they should be doing to to make a transition into health? Um, I, I think health is a very,、uh, very big area.、Uh, so I, I think, in my view, there are at least three. One is the healthcare,、uh, like the center,、um, like hospitals, different kinds of hospitals, and another big part is those pharmaceutical companies. They are another big player in healthcare, and、uh, I think the third part,、uh, the third part, maybe medical devices. Companies.、Uh, in addition to these big three, there are all kinds of this healthcare tech startup.、Um, so I think those are probably the the、uh, four, three or four、uh, big areas. I think in different this in these different areas, the 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 demand for design research or UX research varies. I think hospital is probably the place where. I think almost all the hospital will would think their mission is patient first, right? All the healthcare they will tell you we are patient first. So maybe this is a good place because they are actually make human beings first. So that is a good、uh, start for UX researcher because we are doing human centered design. We need somewhere that centered human <laughs> human first.、Uh, but in other places, they like pharmaceutical. They are developing medications. So their their mission is to is on the medication itself, on the drug itself,、uh, and in the meantime, they still need to think about、uh, patient experience, about the, taking this medication, or different ways of、uh, monitor clinical trials or doing digital clinical trials. So that is where they they would like design or UX research,、uh, medical device. Is another interesting place because in medical device you really need a human being to interact with that device. The human being can be the clinician, physician, or the patient who's using like a thermometer. <laughs> thermometer is example, you know, those、mm-hmm. medical device.、Uh, so they actually have to pay attention to to human experience.、Uh, for all those healthcare. Health tech startup,、uh, those company, it's it's too big. There are a lot of out there. I don't even know how to comment on that.、Uh, 
Yeah. So I think those are the different areas in, in healthcare in, in general. I think if you want to transition, so you don't need a healthcare background to get into the healthcare user research. Because when when they have the demand to help uh, to hire a, a UX researcher or design researcher in healthcare, which usually means they um, they are in the product space. You know, they, they have a product they want to de- develop. Uh, they need uh, they need help to develop this product. So you need to be a very good uh, product researcher or design researcher, user experience researcher. That's uh, I think they, that's the um, the baseline requirement and your healthcare experience or background is preferred. Got it. How about, um, you know, so basically what I'm hearing there is, is really, you know, any maybe social science degree that lends itself to product research is sufficient. It doesn't need to be medical anthropology. And that if you have additional health experience, obviously it's, it's beneficial. What about though, um, you know, given the kind of early, the constraints you talked about earlier and the type of research you need to do, is there any particular research, you know, methods, you know, just just sort of background in terms of skills that would be very useful for the health space, or at least uh, I should say, like the hospital health space. A h- hospital, I, I think some familiarity uh, will because the health space is very. There are basically two big areas. One is you study, you do the product for the patient or health consumer. Um, that is very similar to a lot of like consumer research, consumer product research, because you do the research for the patient. Um, another big area is uh, the product you develop for the clinicians. Clinician is uh, including uh, physician, MDs, nurses, coordinators, medical assistant, you know, all the people who work in the clinical space. So that may be a little bit challenging. You you probably need to have a little bit um, um, like understanding different roles, um, maybe at least the different roles. And um, for different roles, they will have different clinical workflow. You have to you know, it's not like you have to understand, but when you start the job, you probably need to pick up those quickly. If you have previous experience in the clinical space, that will be easier for you, but it's still not uh, not necessary. And another big question I got all the time, for example, I work in the cancer hospital, do you have to know something about cancer? Um, the answer is yes and no. Yes, it's because you probably have to know a little bit what is oncology, what is tumor, what is chemotherapy. But those are very easy. You because we, I'm not going to be a, to be an oncologist to treat patient. I will never be, and you don't need to be. Uh, but you still have to know a little bit what is uh, what is cancer, what is tumor, how it is developed. You know, doing a little bit Google search, reading Wikipedia, even Wikipedia. I have to say, um, and uh, maybe taking some courses on uh, Coursera. There's those like cancer biology course. It will be very easy easier to pick up. I used to work on HIV AIDS. That is very challenging. I don't know. My knowledge about HIV is basically similar to to a lot of lay people, non-medical professional. But when I did my postdoc for HIV, I have to, my first stop uh, start is to read a lot of anthropological work on HIV 
because that's easier for me. I can read anthropology. Hmm. Uh, I, I like to read anthropologists writing on HIV. So that's my first step to get into HIV. After that, I already know what basic anthropologist uh, stands. Uh, stand on HIV, and I started to look at uh, some medical journal on HIV. And I, um, during my postdoc, postdoc, I had the privilege to went to all those medical seminar seminar about HIV, about like HIV treating uh, cure strategy. Those those international AIDS conference. I think that's another way for me to quickly pick up what is HIV, what is AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think don't get intimidated by healthcare uh, because you're not going to be a doctor. Uh, your goal is not to treat patients. Your goal is to improve their experience. Even they, even sometimes uh, the patient they 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 only have a few months to live, but you are still you still want to improve their um, the life quality of life in the next few months. So that's sure. our goal. Our goal is not to, to cure anyone. So, you've spoke a few times of you know working on projects that are patient facing, working on others that are clinician facing. So the ones that are clinician facing are they presumably are they tools that are used internally for you know, the process of diagnosis and treatment and. Oh sure, you know these days there there's another big set of this healthcare company they are. They are producing EHR electronic health record mm-hmm. or electronic medical record. Uh, there are some big companies out there like Epic, Allscript, uh, Cerner. Cerner. Those yeah. are another, yeah, big bulk of those health tech com. They don't really call them health tech company. I don't know what they call them, but <laughs> they do develop these interfaces for clinician to process uh, clinical data, and those are the systems clinicians are using. Got it. And uh, increasingly, physicians you know, or big hospital systems um, are starting to look at, or in some cases already test and use, you know, machine learning for things like you know uh, visual identification potentially of you know tumors, right? In in fields like radiology, and so. Um, have you had the opportunity to work, you know, around any machine learning? And you can be vague if you can't speak about any specifics. But have you had the chance to touch on anything machine learning based yet? Um, I think machine learning is is a buzzword uh, uh, because speak it's too vague. I think in um, so those are the project will be like very uh, innovative. I think we all work on those to some extent. But not to the level of uh, you know the the recognition of a tumor image is going to someday is going to replace radiologists. Far from that, I think it's very far from that. I think what we are doing machine learning in our uh, for the clinician is maybe sometimes just very 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 basic. Like um, you know, doctors they all they all writing notes, medical notes, maybe. I want to search the node, maybe I will have a keyword to enter the keyword and all the nodes related to that keyword will pop up. It doesn't sound very fancy, it's, you know, it's very common, but those may be the, the first step. Um, for those things like you are going to replace clinician at some point, far away from that. I think there's a misunderstanding about healthcare is uh, from tech, at least from 
um, some part in tech is tech is going to replace doctors. I, I don't know whether you have heard of that. Um, doctors will be, you know, re, you know, someday they, their job, because the robot can do their job, they don't need doctors anymore. It's far away from that. I think for doctors, they are not, the misunderstanding of healthcare is to treat it as a, as a hard science. You can use a robot to do the hard science. You know, yeah, you can decision support. You can put all the variables and the, the robot can do everything. But healthcare is about relationship. Healthcare, you're treating patient. Patient is a human. It's the relationship between the hospital, doctor, and the patient. It's a relationship. It's about trust. So I don't think machine can ever take, you know, replace the trust, replace. I don't think machine can do relationship building, basically. Yeah, no, sure. I'm with you. But I think that's actually the interesting opportunity of, of you know, machine learning as a, as a broad discipline and how it's applied, particularly like in this case of image recognition, you know, within maybe radiology is really freeing up time potentially Right, you know, through decision support to focus on the the trust and the relationships, and 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 building, you know, uh, building well, building a relationship with the patient. Um, you know, I we typically look at it as try to look at it as an enabler, you know, of human interactivity of of human relationships rather than a replacer of those. You know, in the work that we do. And, you know, where we can use it to sort of peel off some repetitive tasks, we yeah. like it, right? Mm-hmm. And then to kind of allow, you know, a human to, you know, do something that provides added value that maybe they didn't have the time to do previously. Um, I, 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 see, I don't think it's added value. It's more like they can free them up from the work. They can focus on the patient more. Because I think when you go to see the doctor, a lot of us has the experience is the patient is looking at the computer typing, not looking at you. Yeah. A lot of cases, and none of the patient likes that. Hmm. So maybe if you automate some tasks, the doctor can look at you, can talk to you. They don't need to type. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the good thought. Um, I think it's uh, and. Uh, it is developing. It's, I, I, I'm not going to say we have anything tangible yet. Uh, and if you look at the whole healthcare um, uh, like technology, that's the direction. But I don't think anyone has the, has like the dominant product yet. Got it. Aside from that potential, you know, future in healthcare, is there anything else that you you know are really excited about in in the ways that tech is going to contribute? So, and something kind of tangible that you see is on the, the you know the horizon, not just maybe a, a possibility, but something you see. I, I would think there's a. Um, I did a project. Uh, we worked on a project uh, using voice, uh, and it actually won some award. I think for, from that perspective, I think using voice, like when you have a doctor and a clinician, a patient and a clinician have this conversation. Uh, the voice technology, you know, they can record your conversation, listen to your conversation, not record, listen to your conversation and automatically populate your note, the field, and tell you what's going on. So the clinician, I don't need to worry about taking down my note. I can just focus in on talking to you and my note will come up. Yeah, nice. That's that's fantastic. I think that some company like Nuance is doing that. Um, but I don't know whether it's, it becomes like the 
dominant or and I don't know about adoption on that, but from their demo, it's very promising. Great. So I think I saw, did you pitch a South by Southwest talk? Did I see that right? Correct. Yes, I did. Um, did you hear back yet? Has that decision been made? No, I haven't. I didn't, I didn't have time to follow up. I think when the decision is made, I will, I will hear it. I will hear it. Well, I, um, I remember looking at it on the site. And so can you um, maybe share with everybody, you know, what that was about? It definitely sounded interesting. Okay. So that is about we're building a research repository for our design research. And uh, so the, the researcher, uh, researcher, me and other designers, when they do research, we, uh, we put all our data in, in one place so we can speak to each other, we can collaborate, so we don't need to do duplicate research. And we can build up, build the research on top of each other so we can do further. So that's the goal of the, the research repository. Yeah, thanks. And, and so the reason I'm interested in it is, and I've asked this question to many people, like, you know, people from Facebook, Amazon, uh, you know, smaller organizations, consulting companies, startups, you name it, like uh, on the podcast and off. And nobody ever tells me that they have like a solution that really solves the problem. It either is hard to capture the data. Uh, it's hard to get buy-in and consistent use of it. Um, and so it seems like, you know, people make efforts in this space and then over time there's like some entropy and you know it's it's no longer in use so uh seeing as you you did pitch this to south by southwest can you elaborate you know on here on the podcast at all about what you're doing to address that problem so i think we are just getting started yet so i haven't encountered the problem it's not going to be used because we are just started um but i believe um, I think that's the problem of adoption. And when you sometimes when you have uh, people switching from projects to projects, if you and you have new people coming, you have people leave your team, and the practice is not consistent. And um, once in a, you know, eventually the adoption become lower and lower, and it sounds like a failure. So I think it's it's very it's very hard to not. Uh, to avoid, it's very hard to to avoid that that dilemma. But uh, if you don't have it, even if you want to look at some time, you it's just very hard. Uh, we have uh, one example: is somebody work on the project for two months. Two months later, she realized she just heard another researcher did the project before. Two months mm-hmm. later, so I think we we try to avoid that and. Um, as we, um, you know, when you have a lot of things in your uh, repository, and uh, I think maybe repository will, will become the first step for people to look at when they, they want to do some research. Uh, I think in healthcare is a way we encounter because none of us is, you know, medical professional, or even if you're a medical professional, you only work in your role, like you are a nurse you really only work in your nurse role you don't know uh oncologist is doing so i i think we sometimes when we start a project we probably want to look at what is a nurse what is the oncologist what did they say about things so if we have a repository maybe that's the first place we can we can look at so it will be useful 
Sure, yeah. No, I mean, I built a, a relational database when I was doing my thesis work at UNT, you know, for everything and from, you know, my literature reviews to, to all the, you know, primary research. Um, and it's very helpful. And, and of course, I've built similar tools since. Um, but it's, you know, in the case of UNT, when it was just me, it was very easy to do you know, and I could do it my way kind of consistently over and over. But as you have other people, you know, there's there's variation in the way data is often recorded, right? And uh, something that's come up a few times, maybe two or so times on the podcast is, you know, do you take a very broad look or a very sort of microscopic look in terms of um, what you're recording? And so there are varying viewpoints on that, that, you know, you're recording really like, every sort of small finding uh, all the way up to, no, it's too much work and we're just going to sort of blow that out to the sort of major insights or takeaways. And so where are you trying to live in that kind of continuum? So I, I think first of all, we probably want to, you know, re- in terms of recording, if the, the if the meeting is very short, you probably doesn't need to record it. Um, if you have those short meeting with like five people, 15 minutes each, you probably just want to write note. You can upload a note to the database. I think what's more important is the naming convention. Uh, for each project, you need to, I, 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 I'm telling my researchers to name it as, uh, you know, date, quarter, the name of the project, you know, in that way. So at least you know when it was done, so you can look at it. I think naming convention probably is like the most self-evident, easiest to do, but uh, you have to insist because sometimes um, I, you don't, you know, I, I just want to name it. Maybe one, version one for me is enough, but uh, if you put it into the database, you are using that to have a conversation with all the other people you may, you may not even know. So it's, uh, I think naming convention is the first step. And then you will develop this uh, like universal code book, something like universal code book. It's not totally universal, but uh, something like that. And it can also help you. Great. So is there anything that you have coming up uh, aside from Southwest? South by Southwest, which I know we already touched on, but anything else you have coming up that maybe you want to mention, you know, plug anything, whether it's work-related or personal, or just, you know, some tips you want to give to anybody who's looking to get into the field? Uh, I think in terms of tips to get into the field, I think uh, in healthcare, I mentioned before, don't get intimidated by healthcare because we are not the doctors. Remember, we are not the doctors. It is, um, sometimes it is good and bad. It is bad because we're not the doctors. I don't know so many, so much knowledge. I don't know this medication. I don't even know the name, you know, in healthcare medication, they have so many names, so many like names of your body parts. You will never get to know any of them. Uh, but don't get intimidated that because we're not going to treat them. The benefit of not being the doctor is actually making you in a very objective stand because I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to treat you. I'm just trying to understand you. I think that I, I think when I when I interview HIV patients, that was uh, that was actually my ben- uh, benefit for myself because sometimes the the patient will say, "Oh, 
you are a PhD. Can you tell me what medication is good for me? No, I can't. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> you know, that actually to my own benefit. I'm just trying to understand you. And very soon they understand, oh, you are not a doctor. You are not going to um, treat me. You are not going to give me a, a miracle pill. Yeah, I'm just want to talk to you. I think that's, that's actually uh, the good part of not being a medical professional in the healthcare field. All right, great. And uh, so if people had questions and they wanted to maybe follow up with you to kind of learn a little bit more, how can they get in touch? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. It's, it's my name there on LinkedIn. And I'll link to it, of course. So um, Jingin, thanks very much. Appreciate you coming on. Um, it, was, it was great to talk to you and learn a little bit more about uh, you know the health care space. So um, I'll... I'll post, you know, LinkedIn. Um, I hope South by Southwest goes well. I would love to see you there and have another anthropologist there and would be curious to hear how that project goes, how the repository goes over time. So thanks for coming on. Sure. Thank you. Are you going to South? Uh, did you um, uh, put anything for? Uh, not this year. We thought about it as an organization. Um, okay. We're working on something in the art space that's sort of dealing with uh, addressing a number of issues in the art space, but also addressing diversity inclusion issues the way we're okay. sort of, you know, based on some intellectual property we filed. Uh, we will probably apply to do something next year to sort of, un, you know, unveil that a little bit more at, by that okay. time. But so not this year, um, but probably next year. Yeah, so. it's my first submission. So I just want to see how, how, how far it can go. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be curious. You know, we we did one last year, but it was virtual, so I'm not sure of the impact. I know the year prior, yeah. Gigi Taylor, who sure. was who spearheaded the one last year, her her panel got you know great uh, great reviews and was asked. She was basically asked to do it a second time while there. So there there's um there seems to be an appetite there. So I'm glad that you know that you did it, and hopefully uh hopefully you get in. We're rooting for you. Okay. So thank again. you. Take care. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.